In this episode, Robbie Denning and I cover why the how of hunting big mule deer trumps the where. You are listening to the Archery Maniacs Podcast. This is Remy Warren. I am Rihanna Carey. My name is Adam Foss. This is Paul Tedford, professional archer. Hey everyone, I'm Christy Titus and you are listening to Archery Maniacs. We cover everything archery, from the hunting side to the tournament side, with stories, tips and tactics, gear reviews, and more. That, that helped my tuning game so much when I made sure that all my arrows were square. And I'm staring into his eyes, blood's dripping off of its tines, mud is everywhere. The clarity these mavens offer is amazing. I'm just like Spider-Man, you know, on this rock, you know, just laying there. <laughs> Belly crawling in there and I can barely fit in there and I can hear the cat growling at me. So I put my hand on his shoulder and pushed him and we just ran at this elephant. Thanks, everyone, for tuning into the Archery Maniacs podcast. Today on the show, we have none other than the great, the legend, the mule deer hunter, Robbie Denning. Uh, super excited to have him on the show. First off, if you haven't checked out his book, be sure to check out his book. Um, I'll, I'll let him tell more about it at the end of the podcast. Uh, but today we're going to dive into some of the topics that Robbie is going to cover at the Western Hunt Expo in Salt Lake City coming up here February 14th through the 17th, I believe. So we're going to kind of give a little bit of a preview. Hopefully you have time to make it to that show because it's going to be worth your time. But in the meantime, thanks so much for hopping on the podcast this morning, Robbie. Yeah, man, and hey, I wanted to uh, to to clarify. There's a new legend in town, and it's not me. It's Ryan Avery. He was uh, featured on the jumbotron at Shot Show for his recent hunt with Swarovski. So I'm just trying to get that word out there now. So all these people don't need to be hashtagging the legend anymore. It's Ryan Avery now, not me. Ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I don't even really know the story behind that. Oh, um, gosh, you told me once, but it was so long ago. I I was saying it just because I think you know so much about mule deer. I was trying to be sincere. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, hey, dude, I appreciate that. But no, man, I, I can't stand that name. And Ryan dubbed me that about two years ago, dude. And he put it all over social media, all these hashtags. He, he hacked into my Instagram <laughs> and did a bunch of stuff on it and got all these people in Rockslide like calling me that. And, oh, I just every time I hear that, it just makes me cringe. But oh once, yeah, well my bad. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's it's all good. I, uh, but but I just wanted everybody to know that now that Ryan's been featured on the jumbotron at Shot Show, he is the new legend. So let's make sure everybody Perfect. tells him that. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, awesome. Well, first off, I, I kind of want to just. I, I kind of want to briefly cover why you chose to, you know, pick some of the topics that you picked. Um, and, and I'll just name a couple of them off real quick. You know, moving in deer country, obeying the wind, glassing, tracking, still hunting, ambush hunting, knowing the area's true potential, and then estimating actual antler size. Uh, you briefly mentioned that you get a ton of questions uh, specifically on you know, where is, as in what unit. Yeah. So, you know, and I agree because I, you know, I, I probably not at the level that you get, but I, same way here, you know, I, what unit should I apply for? I'm like, well, it's Wyoming, man. You could apply for any of them and, and have a great chance. It's, it's not really where as far as what unit it's where within that unit and how to hunt that unit. I agree completely. So, what kind of made you pick this topic for the Hunt Expo? Is it, and uh, 
uh, yeah, what, what, what was the deciding factor between this as a topic? Well, what you just said is, you know, when you, I get the privilege of talking to, you know, at least a few hundred deer hunters a year, you, you know, through PMs and, you know, rock slide and you know, DMs on Instagram and, you know, various shows and everything. And it seems to be, that's kind of where everybody's focus is, is on the tag, you know, like I, oh, I drew this tag or, oh, I'm applying for this tag. I mean, that's where they're putting all their energy. And, and that's, that's great. I'm going to talk about that at the Western Hunting Expo that you, you know, you got to have an application strategy. I think about, you know, the where a lot, you know, where am I going to apply? Where am I going to go? But I find that that's kind of where a lot of guys stop is once, once they've got the tag in hand, they just show up to the unit and they think the unit's reputation is, is going to take care of itself. And it certainly helps to hunt great you you know strive for that there are better units than others out there but with the draw odds getting so low now i mean they've always been bad but they're really bad now uh i it just you just can't focus on that anymore and, and so what i'm trying to get guys to to think beyond just drawing the tag yeah let's put in for great tags but a lot of years you're not going to draw a great tag and and you just you just gave a great example the state of wyoming you know most of the units are open to uh, some type of otc hunting for mule deer you may have to wait a year or two but you know if you take out the the western wyoming units and and maybe 128 and a few other ones you, know, you can hunt just about every year and and looking back over my my mule deer career I've taken most of my bucks on tags like that because you end up hunting them more often, you know, cause you can, you know, you can learn the unit, you can go back where when I go to the Western hunting expo here in a couple of weeks, if you go down on that floor where everybody's applying for the expo tags, it looks like an anthill in there of guys applying. And to me, that's like a visual representation of what's going on in every draw in every Western state. You've got thousands of, of us, after just a few tags and i'm not saying not to do that but i'm saying that if you all your focus goes there you're not going to be thinking about what really counts and that's your you're polishing your deer hunting skills and spending a lot of time in deer country you know those 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 um techniques that you just laid out and i'll hit them again really fast here moving in deer country obeying wind glassing tracking still hunting ambush hunting knowing your area's true potential estimating antler size these are all concepts from my book and and i and i've learned that that's you know once you get the tag it doesn't matter if it's an otc tag or if it's a you know a ponsagon tag you, you, this is what's gonna get you the best buck not the tag itself some guys get lucky um you know in in, in any unit but, but you you, you got to do what's repeatable and, and and getting lucky is not repeatable but polishing those deer hunting skills are is what's repeatable and so that's what I, i'm gonna kind of dive into at western hunting expo is what what my personal application strategy looks like you know it's it's, it's varied from um applications for easy to get tags all the way up to difficult tags. And then when the draws come out, most of the time I end up with the easier draws, that's my tag. And then I, I, I start focusing on how to apply all those skills there, all those techniques for that particular piece of deer country. And you said it a minute ago, it's usually um, small places within the unit, you know, not just the unit itself, you know, so you got to start learning those. I mean, there's, there's a lot to do there. And that's why so many guys every year will draw some great tag and get skunked. 
because they were, mm-hmm. they were riding on the reputation of the tag. So anyways, that's kind of the whole theme of it right there. Yeah. And I, I agree with you completely. I, it's, it's interesting that we talk about this. Cause I just, I went down and I met a buddy uh, just two nights ago and he was talking about, well, he goes, oh, I, you know, I have a, I have some, some units that you should probably start applying for and building up points. And I said, building up points. So what the hell am I going to do that for? <laughs> I said, I said, I'll just apply for those zero point hunts, man. And I go there. I learned the tag. I learned the hunt. If I don't kill anything, I can probably come back next year if I want to, you know, and that to me is, is so huge. And that's, that's like, you know, uh, obviously I'm a resident of Wyoming, so I can just buy an over the counter general deer license, but man, it's just any state out there that you can more frequently get a tag I just feel that that your your success and everything like that is just going to slowly start creeping higher and higher and higher because as you know Robbie once you can learn well the deer when the wind's blowing this direction it's this temperature the deer are usually over here in this pocket and when the rut kicks mm-hmm. in and all the people are pressuring along the road the deer are usually over there once you start learning that kind of stuff your success starts really elevating yeah and and on a draw tag a great draw tag you don't have that type of recon and intel because you know it'll be the only time you've got to hunt the unit at best you might have some secondhand information from you know biologists and you know maybe a few people that have hunted it if you're really really lucky you'll have a buddy that had the tag the year before and he goes with you but you can't really count on that stuff and so 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 yeah the you're leveling the playing field by learning your your units but it, it just doesn't sound sexy to just go buy a you know a resident over the counter tag and and you know it's it's guys just don't put their effort there is what I find. And, you know, their, 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 their mindset is on the, on the big tag and all that other stuff where often you can kill just as good a bucks, even better. I mean, I killed my best buck in years just last year on an OTC tag. And I've had several great tags. I'm going to talk about it in this seminar too, about, you know, I've drawn some good tags around the West over the years, but my very biggest bucks haven't come off of those tags because you get just one shot at them, you know, one chance to learn them. And with point creep now, even if you drew one that's, you know, two or three points, it might be six or seven the next time you get it. You know, we age faster than the, than we can catch the draw odds is the problem. It's almost like sheep hunting now. (laughs) <laughs> yeah that is so true and and it's it's interesting that you bring up the topic you know it's it's not sexy to buy the over-the-counter tag because it's it's a lot cooler to yeah i got the arizona strip tag no i'm serious because i think the opposite i think that mm-hmm. it's a lot more of a challenge to go buy the over-the-counter tag that everybody and their dog has access to and go in there and battle mm-hmm. the other thousand people and come out successful i think that's what's sexy you know i i think that's that that's tough you know it's definitely not easy mm-hmm. no it's not it's discouraging and and you know and even though that that buck i got uh, last year is one of my better bucks i have hunted that area on and off for 20 years i think i added it up i did about 13 hunts in there over 20 years you know some of them just not even my main hunt of the year you know i just go to the area and you know hunt two or three days and and you know i had chances at other bucks i saw other decent bucks and you know you don't go back to a poor area but it still took me 13 hunts 
and and I and I ended up getting a buck that was better than some of the really one of my probably my top three or four bucks and um, you know rivals anything I've got on on draw tags and uh, so so yeah there's a little bit more sense of satisfaction in there and uh, so so I want to be clear I'm all about applying for great tags I really am and that's why I have applications in you know six to ten states a year it just depends and uh, you know some of those are the Hail Marys you're probably never going to get them but if you do it's worth all your effort and and but I think on this on this seminar right here I'm going to cover I got it right here one two three four I'm going to cover five hunts basically do a case study on the last five hunts that I've went on I end up turning it into before if I can't fit it in the whole hour. So I just added up the draw odds on those hunts, and the average draw odds for those hunts was 77%. With a low of seven, I did draw one really good tag in 15. Um, the next one was an 80% chance at six points. So I did have to wait six years for that tag. So, you know, that's a pretty high demand tag. That was a Colorado tag. But then the other three were 100% um, chance of getting them either through the draw or you know, over the counter or whatever they were. And yet my very best buck came off of the, off of the OTC out of those last five months. And so, so all, I'm all about chasing the good tags. I just want to, I just want to help people polish their deer hunting skills and, and, um, you know, there's other guys are doing it different ways. Other guys are having success, but for me, it's, it's come down to you know, pick your unit, learn it, hunt it as hard as you can be patient and in time that will pay off. Yeah. <clears throat> yep. For sure. Um, so with that, I think that's kind of an excellent segue to kind of start diving into some of these topics, you know, focusing on, you know, locating spots within a unit rather than the actual unit itself. Um, mm -hmm. so once, you know, once you, once you get your tag, Robbie, and it's, and you've done the, done a little bit of your research to figure out where you want to go, um, let's dive into moving in deer country. Cause I think there's a lot more to it than just walking in there and not paying attention to what's around you and, and everything like that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you nailed it right there. And, and and that's why that ended up being one of the techniques in my book. I, I thought over that a lot. And um, so the term moving in deer country, how is that a technique? Well, it's, it's what you said. A lot of guys just walk into deer country. And, you know, they, they, they come from a busy lifestyle, you know, traffic, work, you know, our minds are busy and all the stuff that we do. And we take that pace of life into deer country with us. And deer don't live that way at all. They live in an environment of, of uh, you know, relative silence, um, uh, very familiar sense, you know, so if something changes, they can pick that up. Um, you know, their, 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 their visual ability is incredible. And so often as a human being, we go into that environment. We don't realize we stick out like a sore thumb and we are spooking deer uh, that we don't even ever see. And that matters. And, and, and when I was a lot younger, I just used to think you had to just show up. You just had to be there and something was going to happen. Well, that goes back to what I was saying that, yeah, well, anybody can get lucky, but that's not repeatable. And 
you know, through my twenties, I had some chances at some really big deer, you know, archery rifle. Um, and they kept getting away. And I finally realized because I'm not getting the drop on these deer because they know I'm there before I know they're there or I'm ready to shoot. And that sounds really elementary. Like, yeah, you know, you can't, can't let the tip the deer off that you're there yet. I spent many years doing exactly that. And I meet guys all the time. I can tell by how fast they walk, um, you know, their, their stories, how, how they, how they tell me they're hunting, you know, simply talking to their buddy. That's a problem in hunting with a buddy is you talk and, you know, you may start the morning at a whisper, but by, by, you know, noon, we haven't seen anything. You're talking just like I am right now. Deer hear all that. And it doesn't even have to be the target buck that you're after. It can be, you know, that little group of does that's down in the timber below. You don't even know is there and you've spooked them. And, you know, they, they, they run over the ridge and every deer in the country hears that, you know, the, 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 the pounding of those hooves and the blowing and everything like that. And that puts the whole forest on alert. And so moving in deer country just simply means think about how you're you're moving through the country don't just get it in your mind that okay as long as i get to the glassing point by daylight i'm fine we probably screw ourselves so often hiking into glassing points in the dark and since i wrote about this concept in my book i've had a few guys reach back out to me it's like oh my gosh that's exactly what i was doing by the time i get to my glassing point you know i had just i had polluted you know, miles of deer country that had potential for it. And it just changed the way that they hunted. And, and mm-hmm. so the concept of moving in deer country is just, we move too fast. We're louder than we think. And you've got to change all that. If you really want to start seeing the better bucks, because they're keying into everything that's going on in, in, in their, in their immediate surroundings. That's, that's why they're five, six, seven, eight years old, even living in a, in an over the counter unit. You know, they have figured out, how to pay attention to those warning signs. Yeah, absolutely. And not only that, I think, uh, I think a really important thing too is, is where you're moving, you know, the speed of your moving and everything like that is huge, but where you're, where you're doing your movement, you know, more often than Mm -hmm. not, if, if, and it, it, it usually takes more work. Yep, it absolutely does. But more often than not, if you'd have walked 200 yards off to your left, and got down and and under the edge of that ridge line and then walked all the way around the ridge line and then came up as opposed to I don't want to walk that two or three hundred yards and then walk down and then have to walk back up. You know, where you're doing your movement is is really important and how you're getting in and out of your glassing area. Much like I mean equate it to the whitetail stand, guys. Everybody they talk how important it is to get in and out of their whitetail stand and, and being sent free, not disturbing the bedding areas. Mm-hmm. It's no yeah that's a great um um way to compare it right there i didn't even think about that um you know uh a whitetail stand you know typically guys don't have to walk a long ways not compared to mule deer country and they plan everything to get in there uh the smart ones do because they know once they get in that tree and if they haven't polluted their area, they are deadly. You know, it's pretty hard for, for, for a buck to know that they're there. But you, you're right. We don't think about that typically in mule deer country. It's just, you know, getting to where we think the bucks are going to be and forget about the rest of it. And you know, a lot of times it's a mile, two miles, three miles. So, you know, you got to think about all that too. But, but, but yeah, yeah, that's why I said in my 20s, I, 
I had some chances at some pretty big bucks, but looking back, I, I didn't really have chances at him. I just spooked him and saw him is really all it was. You know, if you don't get a shot, you don't really have a chance. Or if you get a crappy shot and you just blow it, that wasn't really a chance. <laughs> I, I, I want, I want to, to see the buck before he sees me. That's the only way I'm going to, to get off an accurate shot. So, so I like the white tail comparison there. You're exactly right. Yeah, well, thanks. Yeah, I but I agree. If if the animal sees you before you see it, um, that that's that's pretty well checkmate. You know, it's over. So, <clears throat> um, especially if it's an old, you know, an old an old buck, especially if it's an old buck, because they don't yeah. get us with a lot. No, no, exactly. They're they're like say, there's a reason they they got that old. <laughs> but. Uh, you know, obviously a huge thing about moving in deer country is having the wind in your advantage. So talk a little bit about uh, obeying the winds and some of the do's and don'ts mm-hmm. and, and how even trying to cheat the wind can bite you in the ass. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and that, that's another technique that I laid out in my, in my book. Um, you know, right after moving in deer country, I wrote a whole chapter on it. And this is how I look at the wind. I mean, I think all hunters, with even basic skills understand, oh, yeah, man, you got to be um, downwind from your from your target species. But what I find is that we really only think about that once we know where the deer are. And so, you know, if I'm glassing a, a, a ridge and a buck comes out on it, and I, I need to stalk him because he's out of range. Yeah, of course I'm going to get the wind in my favor. I mean, that's that's the basics. But what I mean by obeying the wind is I let the wind decide how I am going to hunt or approach a particular area. And so if the wind is coming out of the southwest in an air, in a little basin that I'm about to go into, and let's just say it's not even a really steep basin, it's kind of more like rolling hills where, you know, your wind is going to travel right across the deer country for hundreds of yards. I think deer can smell, I've had deer smell me at 400 yards, a measure 400 yards with a rangefinder. And, you know, so if you're in a place like that and you're just polluting everything, you know, maybe if you're on a really steep hillside and the wind's blowing up, there's only a little bit of deer country above you, you know, you're not really polluting much. But if, if you're, if you're going to hunt through this basin and you have the wind at your back and there's, uh, it doesn't matter if there's a lot of cover or not. A lot of cover just, you know, hides the deer a little better and and you don't realize how many deer you're spooking. But if it's really open country, you're still spooking them. And a lot of guys think, well, hey, man, I got this giant 338 edge P on my back. Any deer that gets up, you know, I'm I'm going to blast him. Oh, no, you won't. He'll he'll jump and run and bounce. And, you know, that little stotting thing that they do, <laughs> they are hard to hit beyond about 50 yards. And so by, by walking into that with my wind at my back, I, I'm just, just screwing myself for, for lack of, of a better term, where if I do the extra work it takes to approach that basin or that country from the north, so the wind is in my face, even before I've seen deer, remember I'm talking about before I've seen deer, then I, I, I'm just tipping all the advantages in my favor. I'm not just letting the deer know I'm coming in. And remember, it doesn't matter if I spook the target buck. If I spook any deer, 
it's going to affect my hunt. And, and, and too often we get lazy and think, oh, it doesn't matter. I spooked that doe out of there. Heck, I'm glad she's out of there now. I can focus on what I want. No, no, no. She's telling every deer around something's going on. They're used to, they're used to quiet. They're, you know, they know the rhythm of the forest and they hear that blow and that boom, 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 boom. If there's a five, six, seven, eight year old buck around there, he, he's, he's going to do whatever it takes to make sure you don't see. And I learned that over the years the hard way. And so anytime I'm within, you know, 400 yards, or even a half a mile, I don't think it's too far. It gives you a margin for error of, of some, you know, potential deer country that I'm going to hunt either by glassing or still hunting through or ambushing. We'll talk about those in a minute. I'm going to get the wind in my favor, or at least so it's not blowing right into the area before I even see deer. Okay. So, so that's all I mean by the concept. I may want to hunt the area from that ridge over there because man, I can really see into there. And, you know, I really like how it lays and the sun's at my back. I'm supposed to glass with the sun on my back. Yeah, but dude, none of that's going to do you any good if your scent is blowing right into the country. So I have to, <laughs> I have to let the wind decide how I'm going to hunt it. And over the years, it's tipped the odds in my favor. I'd end up getting the drop on some bucks that I think I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have got them had I not had the wind in my favor. So don't just walk around the forest and think I only need to pay attention to the wind after. I've seen the deer. It's, it's the same concept in bugling elk. Um, I'm no elk expert, but I've been around a lot of guys that hunt it. And, and I, I find that a lot of times they're not thinking about the wind either until the elk answers them. Then they get the wind in their favor. But it's, it's the whole concept is, no, you think about all that before you even touch that call. You think about all that on a mule deer before you even get, get close to the area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, yeah, get, obviously getting getting the wind right is extremely important. And I think one of the hardest things about the wind is, you know, say you got the wind right and you get up there to your glassing point and you're you're moving you're moving very consciously so that you can get there without blowing everything in the country out of there. Uh then you get up there and you glass something up. Uh, you know, not just on the other side of the drainage, but on the other side of the drainage up a finger. And mm -hmm. I think from that point there, the hardest part is then reading what the wind is doing all the way over there. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's just, I, I, I'm still not good at it. And it's just that that's something that's just hard. And I'm not so sure you can become really good at it because there's so many variables going on, especially in big mountain basins, you know, where you've got wind coming from, you know, 16 different directions. Um, exactly. You know, compared to maybe some flatter terrain or even desert terrain where you typically have a prevailing wind that holds, you know, it overpowers all the thermals and it just holds all day. So what I do in that case, Zach, is I just feel my way in. So I make my best guess and I, and I get over there. And then once I start getting, you know, 800 yards or under, I really start to, to pay attention because I know I'm, I'm in the strike zone now. They're going to smell me. Um, and But I also have the better recon because now I can look at the trees. I can, I, can, I can pull lighter out of my pocket, check the wind. You know, I can, I can kind of dial it in. And <laughs> regrettably, there's been times I've got in, especially in steep country, it's so hard to move in. I've got in and I'm like, 
oh, the wind's not that great, but oh, I don't want to hike back up to the top and come around. <laughs> so I'm just going to go for it. And you know what? I can't think of any time I was ever happy I did it. And most of the time, all I'm seeing is a big white ass bounding away and I'm trying to get a shot. That's usually what happens. Yeah. That way. So yeah. Anyways, that's everything I mean about obeying the wind right there. Perfect. One second. My kid is screaming. Go ahead, buddy. I'm going to grab some water. I'm back. All right, I'm back. <laughs> Disaster averted. <laughs> Can you hear me okay? Uh, you're you you sound like you're a long ways away from the microphone. All right, let me let me see what I got. There Everybody, you go. buddy. There we go. Shove them in my ears a little bit further. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I really like what you, uh, how you said, you know, I kind of feel my way in there. I think that's, I think that's a really important, important thing to say right there. Cause like you say, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to be able to just look over there and say, yep, this is exactly what the wind is doing over there. And I know exactly how to handle that. You know, it's, it, it definitely is just like you say, feeling your way in there and making sure that on your way in there, you just keep the wind in your favor as you make that stock. Um, and then that, that's also going to keep it. So you, you know, can be on your toes and everything like that. So if all of a sudden you do feel the wind hit you in the back of the neck, you better figure something else out quick. <laughs> yep. So, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, the, and the next topic that we have is glassing and I don't, you could, you could probably literally write an entire book and do several podcasts just on glassing and the importance alone. Um, but what's, you know, what kind, what are a few of the main points of glassing that, that you are, you feel is most important and that you're planning on covering? Yeah. So with glassing, I did do a, an entire chapter in my book on it and, and then another sub chapter called long range glassing. It's important. And, but I kind of find with glassing, it's sort of like the whole conversation we had about the unit 
at the beginning of this mm-hmm. podcast. And what I mean by that is sometimes that's all guys focus on is, man, I, as long as I got the glass, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to kill horny head. And it's like, well, if it's a, you know, opening morning, you know, or a lightly hunted draw tag where the deer are using the open country, or, you know, maybe it's an early archery season, but even those, there's no guarantee because there's a lot of hunters on the early archery season. Glassing can't be your only technique. It's it's important. It shows you where the deer are. It allows you to plan your stalks, approach them, you know, with a, gr- a greater chance of remaining undetected. But, you know, a lot of, I just, I just kind of learned over the years that i got to do other things besides glass. Glassing is where it starts, and sometimes glassing is where it ends. But there's – until we're shooting howitzers across the basins and, you know, or, or carpet bombs at these bucks, there's going to be a, a period between when we figure out where they're at and when we're actually within killing range of them and, and, and able to see them. And that's where all these other techniques, moving in deer country, obeying the wind, tracking, still hunting, ambushing, that's where they all come together. And you know, I hope I'm not getting too scatterbrained on this, but I, I guess all I'm saying is all you do is glass and you're, and you're not able to just hunt really great units that are semi-open. There's going to be a whole bunch of the hours of the day that you're just staring into the timber and you're not going to see anything because that's where the deer go. They, 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 the bigger, older bucks I'm talking about, they're, they're using the cover. And, um, so let me give you an example. A lot lot of guys think I glass a lot more than I do when I really get talking to them. You know, they think, Mm -hmm. Oh man, you must be glassing like eight or nine hours a day, glass from daylight till dark. Oh my gosh. I have only done that a couple times in my whole life where I actually sat (laughs) one, one spot all day. And, um, number one, I'm just not built for it. I I'm just, I'm just more active than that. I was going to say, I feel like you have way too much energy to do that. Robbie. Yeah. yeah. So, 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 so you guys that are able to do that consistently, I am not disputing your technique. That's why I said earlier that other guys do it differently and, and have success. I'm just saying how I do it. But what I learned in the units that I can get a tag in more often where there's other hunting pressure, you virtually know where I hunt, that there's not other hunters that if I'm sitting on the knob for 12 hours a day, there, there was really only about a half an hour a day. My, my optics were doing me a lot of good and that's when the deer were out of the car. So I use my optics a lot. I probably got glass about two to five hours a day, depending on the area. And you know, it is, it is a main technique, but um, I think where to really get into this Zach is where we go wrong is we don't match our optics to our hunt and we just think that hey as long as i have a great spotter and i have a pair of 10 power binoculars i'm covered well yeah for a lot of hunts that you are but there's some hunts like i have some great glass rock slide is open but even before i had great glass and i was using a 20 power leopold spotter that's weighs like 25 ounces it just a beautiful thing to pack and but looking through it was like looking through my daughter's kaleidoscope no no offense Leopold this is, this is an old scope from the 90s they've got a lot better but my whole my whole point is is I would use that glass 
when I was already had a buck scouted. I knew about where he was living. I didn't need to be on one ridge looking across to another mountain three miles away. No, no, this was something as I'm uh, pussyfooting through the basin and I see a white patch at the top of the basin 400 yards away and I can't quite make it out. I can pull that little spotter out and see what it is. So I, I match that spotter to that hunt where another hunt. Yeah. I got out the big guns, man. Last year where I found this, this, this big deer that I ended up killing. Um, I, I, I was packing in about 15 power Swarovski SL seeds or uh, C's or uh, six Zulu nines, just depending on the, on what I was testing. And then the, the big Swaro, um, uh, 25 to 50 by 80 because I could see miles of deer country around me, Zach. And, and I didn't need to move a whole lot to see the deer. And I was there for, you know, multiple scouting trips, archery season. Um, and it, it, it made sense to carry that much glass on that hunt. Um, gotcha. however, the day I killed the buck, I ended up with just uh, my little, the one everybody makes fun of me for carrying, which is my old Swarovski CT, which is like the old pirate scopes. You know, yeah, you pull them out. They make the, the little swishing sound as you pull them out. And, <laughs> and, but it only weighs 42 ounces. It fits well in my pack because by the time rifle came around, those bucks had left all that open country. They were using the timbered ridges. I didn't need to pack around a 56 ounce spotting scope, which also needs a heavier tripod. I didn't need all that. And so that allows me to, you know, hunt better, hunt more efficient. And so I was matching the glass to that hunt. And then a lot of guys are surprised to find out I only use seven or eight power handhelds. I don't use tens. Um, I don't like tens for my style of hunting. I'm typically moving too much. I'm, um, you know, if I'm not seeing the bucks, and it can vary. I mean, an early archery season, maybe I'm sitting on the knob for five or six hours. But you know, if I'm not seeing the bucks on my typical, you know, muzzleloader or, or rifle hunt that occurs later in the fall, I know they're in the cover. And so then I'm figuring out how to get in the cover and kill them. And I don't need a big, a big power binocular. In fact, I don't want one. They're too shaky because I end up having to glass a lot from the standing position because you can't sit down and see over the vegetation. When you get in these bucks living rooms, you know, there, there's a reason they're living in there. It's because they're hard to see the terrain's broken up. There's plenty of cover, um, and a 10 power binocular to really get the most out of it. I want that on a tripod or I want to be sitting with my butt on the ground and my elbows on my knees. Well, and a lot of places by the time I do that, well, I can't see over the brush. And so I, I, I'm using a lower power binocular because I know um, I'm not just using that binocular for scanning the big open slopes three miles away, although I have. Um, um, I, I'm using that for my kind of my close-in work. And, and, um, um, and so just matching my optics to – to, to the hunt. Like my 15 power binoculars, I took all the straps off of them. I've got, I've got the Vortex Kaibabs 18s. I've got the six hour Zulu nines. Um, I've got the, the Swaro SLCs. Looks like I'm going to have the Zeisses here pretty soon. Um, none of those will have a neck strap on them. Um, gotcha. See picture, see pictures in my article where it did have neck straps on them. Well, that was just because I, I thought, oh, this is a really nice neck trap. I should put it on. But later on, I realized, no, no, these binoculars are never going to be hanging around my neck. They go on a tripod. It's the only time I'm going to be using them in that situation. The rest of the time, they're either in the truck, 
at home if I don't need them for that hunt or they're in a, in a padded case inside my backpack. And so my whole point in all of that is we need to think about what, what we're packing around and why we're doing it. And so every hunt is just a little bit different for me. As far as the techniques of glassing, I don't think it's as hard as what hunters make it. I have taken some very new hunters out in the field. And once I just show them the basics of getting their optics steady and understanding that deer look different in different terrains at different time of the year. You know what I mean by that? In the summer, they're kind mm-hmm. of reddish, you know, tannish, easier to see as you get into the fall, depending on the zone that you're hunting. If you're in the sagebrush zone, um, the, 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 the deer almost look exactly like the sagebrush to come about. Oh, they do. 5th of October. So you kind of, once I can kind of get that through my mind or, or whoever I'm teaching, then I see these, I see these guys start picking up bucks within just a couple of days that I'm not even seeing. So the, the, the learning curve is short is what I'm getting at. And some of these articles I read on glass and everything, I don't know. It just sounds like some mysterious thing that only, you know, only the old wizards understand. And I'm like, no, nah, I've seen guys <laughs> with, you know, crappy glass that just get their glass steady and they know where to look for deer and boom, they're seeing them. And, and yeah, you got a grid, you got to get all that. I, I, I don't want to minimize it. You, you, you get, this is what I put in my book. You'll, you'll get really good at glassing in your first couple of years if you just get steady, learn to grid, and then then the, the point of diminishing returns takes over. You, you'll get better every single year. I'm certainly better at it now than I was 20 years ago, but I'm not a lot better. That's why I bring up these these new hunters to you because I'm always surprised when I take a new guy out in the field that uh, just how fast they start picking up deer if I just if I just show them those basic things and I've had the the, the, the strange opportunity I don't know if you read my book Josh I I talked about three different guys in there that had either lost an eye or had severe eye problems like genetic eye diseases all of them all three of those guys were great at spotting mule deer because they figured out where to look for them, how to see them, even though they didn't have the greatest vision. I mean, two of them only had one eye. The, the picture of the one guy in my, my book, if you look at him, Eddie Irigoyen, God rest his soul, we lost him last year. Um, he hunted with a half a pair of binoculars, a pair of binoculars sawed in half, and he would just use <laughs> the, the, one, the one side because he didn't have a left eye. And so that's what he would do. And dude, the guy was seeing 90% of what I was seeing. I'm thinking, this guy's just hunted deer you know, a couple of years and he's out here showing me bucks. And, and so I'm going on and on that, that I think glassing is, is not as hard as we make it out to be. Definitely grid, match your glass to your hunt and um, buy the best you can afford, but you don't have to have the very best and just get out there and do it. It's, it's the hands-on of it that's going to teach you how to do it. And if you can go with a deer hunter that has more experience, yeah, you're going to pick up some tips fast, but don't, don't think it's just some mysterious technique. It's not, it's why it's so effective. It's, it, it, it's very effective, even if you're pretty new at it. And that's why it's one of the most important techniques. 
Yeah. And, and two, a couple of things to add to that. You know, I think just like you're saying, obviously the deer look different, different times of years. And I find myself getting out there on the glassing point and I'm thinking, just find the first one, just find the first one. And then once you find that first one, all the others seem to start getting uh, progressively easier. Now, finding a bedded deer and stuff like that, that's always hard. But once you get that first one out of the way, your eyes like, oh, that's what I'm looking for. Yep. And that it, it's crazy. Just, just find the first one. <laughs> that's a really good tip right there. And, uh, and that's why I'd say you just got to get out there and, and, and do it because once you've seen that first one, your brain just takes over. The human brain is incredible. It is incredible. It's doing things we don't even realize. And that, and, and, and that's a case in point right there. But yeah. Once I see that first one, the, my brain's okay. This is what color they are. This is, this is what they look like in this light, this day, this terrain. And I don't have to think about that stuff as I continue to glass. And then, and then the, 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 the sightings start stacking up after that. Oh, there's another, Oh, there's another, God, there's one right here. I didn't even see him. You're exactly right on that stuff, Zach. Cool. Well, thanks. <laughs> That's good to hear. Um, <laughs> no, I, uh, yeah. And, and then just like, uh, another thing that I think is super important with anyone glassing, but especially the new person so that they don't get frustrated is getting their glass where it's solid, you know, yeah. cause if, if I go over to my six year old son and I say, here, find the deer and I just throw him a pair of binoculars, he gets frustrated. Cause I mean, some of them, you know, if it's a 15 power binoculars, they're pretty heavy for a six year old kid to be holding up to their face and holding steady and all that stuff. But I mean, you throw those on a tripod and he's going to enjoy the experience. And as you know, Robbie, if you teach a person to enjoy glassing, everything gets a lot easier from there. And being steady is a huge part of enjoying glassing. <laughs> yep. And, and I think sometimes we, we think, well, I only need to get my spotting scope steady or my 15 power steady. Look at those pictures in my book where I'm glassing off a tripod with eights. Anything that you can that you can get on a tripod with a seven power binocular, an eight power binocular, or, you know, a, a sixty power spotting scope. The steadier you are, the, the more you're gonna see. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, sweet. Well, let's dive into tracking because. Uh, I remember talking a little bit with you about the, you know, this buck you just shot last year uh, and, and some of the tracking that you did with him. And mind you, this is not just, I shot a deer, let's go track him so I can find him uh, or her. It doesn't matter, you know, uh, but this is also, you know, I, I believe you're probably a lot more, when you mentioned tracking in your book, it's much more along the lines of focus and realize big animal tracks because tracks don't lie and if you're finding big animal tracks uh especially deer it's like okay there's got to be a mature deer in the area obviously you can't be like oh yeah that's a 200 inch deer look at that track um but you can be that's probably a 300 pound deer which tends to sometimes equate with what's on the head so um let's you know let's talk about some of the tracking techniques that you utilize and uh, the importance of having that in your tool bag 
Yeah, I think tracking is a top technique and it's kind of a dying art. I think glassing has replaced tracking, you know, because before we had great optics, you didn't have much of a choice other than to just go out and, and walk through the forest and, and pretty soon you were paying attention to the ground and pretty soon you were following big tracks and, you know, deciphering, you know, buck tracks or doe tracks. You were doing all that stuff where glassing is kind of less than the need for it, but but less than the demand for it, put it that way. I don't think it's less than the need for it at all. And so, first of all, what I mean by tracking is... I probably was a little narrow in my book when I, when I wrote that chapter, but tracking to me is not just, okay, there's a track, there's a buck at the end of it. Let's follow him down and kill it. Yeah, that's ideal, but that's really hard to do because that depends on conditions and, you know, things like that. Um, and um, I have tracked down and killed a couple of, 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 of good bucks over the years. My, one of my very best, my very best Wyoming buck, my 224 non-typical was taken, you know, classic tracking, there's a track on the ground. That's a big deer and I'm going to follow it. And um, I followed him and killed him as he got up out of his bed. But that, that is what I used to think of. That's the only tracking that's out there. But as I got older and as I got to talk to more old deer hunters, and those are the guys you really learn from. I began to think more of tracking as an awareness to what is going on around you. And you just gave a case of that, of, you know, seeing a big track in an area, even if it's a day or two old, um, as long as the migration is not going on, it's like, okay, there is a big deer here. And as I've said earlier in the podcast, you know, he's probably hiding in the cover. That's what they do, especially in you know, tags that are easier to get because there's more hunting pressure. And, um, but he's just left you a, 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 a beacon, uh, a flashing beacon on saying, I'm here, slow down, hunt careful, uh, obey the wind, you know, don't, don't just hunt this little 20 acres and then in four hours, you know, you're three miles away. Don't, don't be the old Robbie Denton because that's what I used to do. I didn't really pay attention to those tracks unless there was a deer standing in them. So when I talk gotcha. about tracking, I'm talking about the whole gamut of information that tracks provide and uh number one you can't hunt where there's no tracks <laughs> if there's no tracks <laughs> there's probably no deer now that's a little bit subjective because sometimes it can take a few days especially in really steep country to cover enough of it to see even see the tracks okay now and remember i'm talking about tracking even on dry ground you know, I'm paying attention to tracks year-round when I'm looking for deer, uh, not just when it snows. When it snows, it just makes it easier. And so when it snows, I can sit on a ridge with a, with a good spotter, and I can look around. It doesn't matter if I don't see a deer. I can see tracks in the snow and figure out where those deer are. You kind of lose that ability once you get into the dry ground. But, you know, traversing the country and, you know, scouting the country and everything, if I see a big track sack, or if I see blocky tracks, even if it's not a big track, I know I've just taken a giant unit, which in my book I call the big picture. Nobody gets beyond the big picture. They just go back to what we started with. They're, they're, they're thinking about, oh, I'm in unit X. You know, this is a great unit. It took 10, 10 points. But they're not getting down to the small picture stuff. The small picture is the bit, the, the, the basins, the ridges, the coolies, the, the exact country that big deer are using. There'll be deer throughout just about every square mile of every unit in some densities. But there's the bucks, the bigger bucks are going to be in small places. Most people call those pockets. And a track on the ground 
is his signature. It's his, his, his open sign. I am home. And, and that's what I mean by tracking right there is using that information to now better plan my hunt. How do I approach this area? Is there a glassing point where I can actually back out of here and see into this country without disturbing it all um, versus just sitting on the knob for days and not seeing anything. And then you finally walk through the country and you're like, there is not a freaking deer track in here. There's no deer here. I've been glassing. That's why I'm against 12 hour glassing sessions unless I know where I'm at, because it's like, I just spent all, I, I, I sound like the most patient guy in the world. You know, I, I'm the guru on the top of the mountain here and I've, I've just glassed, you know, for 36 hours and three days. Oh, you fool. <laughs> you just glass country that doesn't even have a deer in it. And that's where track kind of, brings all that together for me. So we, you know, this is another book. It really is. And there's some good books out there. Guys should read um, the Benoit brothers. They were whitetail trackers and the country they hunted in was, is easier than typically what we hunt in the West. Um, but there's a lot of overlap in those techniques and they, they did a lot of snow tracking, but they did, you know, drag out, dry ground tracking. And they're the classic, you know, pick up the track, follow it to the end. Um, and so that has a lot of application in deer hunting, but um, it, even though it's whitetail, it's, it's worth reading from mule deer hunters. They have two books. I think Bryce Townsley wrote them. They're worth looking up a good time of year to read those books is right now. And then um, Tom Brown Jr. Some people think he's sort of a fraud. He's, he's, he's kind of a naturalist type of guy. And you know, some of this stuff is, well, it sounds like a lot of hocus pocus, but his tracking the physical aspects of how he describes tracking really helped me take it to the next level. And he's the one I'm quoting when I really talk about tracks, give you an awareness of what's going on in the area. And so his book is worth reading. And, and so I, I just really encourage guys to, to don't just ignore tracks. Don't just think because there's a deer not standing in them that, you know, they're worthless. No, no tracks are telling you, a story it is it is and it's a story you need to learn how to read and it's gonna help you and especially as you kill some big deer you'll be able you'll, you'll look back and go whoa tracking tracks played a part in this you know even if i didn't track him to his bed and kill him tracks pay, played a part in this i guarantee you that will happen every big buck hunter that i talk to successful big buck hunter always has a working um a level a good awareness of tracks and how they play into the big picture yeah and so let's let's talk just a, a little bit about uh, a few not, you know not all of them i realize there's a lot but uh just a, a few of the the main things that you look for so say you're walking along and you look down and you see a track what are the first couple things that start going through your head Okay. First of all, it doesn't matter if it's a buck or a doe track. It, 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 the first thing it tells me is, okay, I'm in deer country. That matters. Okay. <laughs> because right, even right. though, even though your unit, you know, there's going to be deer in most units, you know, unless you get in the extremely dry units and stuff like that, it's going to be deer pretty much spread throughout the unit, but there's still going to be country void of deer. And you're laughing because that's happened to you before, right? Like there's, you know, of country. <laughs> yeah. There's no deer here, and I don't even know why. 
it looks great. And so as soon as I see a track, it's like, okay, good. At least I'm in deer country here. Now, if it is, if it, some of it's going to depend on the time of year too. If it's, you know, pre-rut, you know, before Halloween, okay, that's telling me there's, there, there's deer here, but it may not have anything to do with a big buck. But if I'm after October 31st, any track is valuable because it's like, hey, if that's not a buck, it's a doe. And does are in estrus right now, and there's going to be bucks looking for them. So, so I kind of think about that. What's the time of year? What's the significance of that track? And then the next thing I'm, I'm looking at is age. How old is the track? And, the, and this is the stuff I learned from Tom Brown Jr. You can track every single day, man. You can, you can track right now, Zach, when you walk out to get the mail out of your mailbox, all right? You can look at your tracks uh, from yesterday going out and you can get an idea of how old those are. What do they look like aging overnight? Think about the weather conditions. Okay. It was, you know, it got down to nine degrees and, it, um, uh, and it never got above freezing. So I know there was no significant melting, but I think there's what's called the weather phenomenon of, of sublimination where the, uh, I hope I got that word right, where the, the, the snow actually evaporates a little bit. So it never, it never turns to water. It goes from a solid to a gas. And so that, that makes the track look a little bit different than if it just was 33 degrees yesterday and it actually melted. It went from uh, a solid to a liquid to a gas. And, and so I'm kind of getting deep here, but I'm just saying you can do this stuff every single day and it, there doesn't have yeah. to be snow. I mean, when I walk across a parking lot in town, if I've got the sun between me and any potential tracks, I will look across that parking lot. And if, if, if there was a dust storm yesterday and this is a, a parking lot that's not heavily traveled, man, I can see people tracks out there. And, you know, I look at them. I pay attention to that stuff. And, and I don't want to, again, I'm not trying to sound like I'm, you know, some guru of tracking or everything. But all I'm talking about right there is just becoming aware that there are tracks everywhere. And, and, and if you go back into the native, native cultures, um, you know, and it's going on in Africa right now and in some of the, you know, very third world places – the best trackers in the world because that's all they do is look at the ground and look at tracks. And so here's back to what you asked me. I'm getting off. I'm getting off on a tangent here. Well, I'm, so I look at the, no, you're good. Uh, you're good. Uh, uh, try to identify the time of the, 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 how old the track is, the significance of the track related to the area, what time of year it is. And then I start looking at the physical dimensions of the track. Bucks typically are, blunt on the end but that can vary depending on the country i've seen some bucks that live in very soft soils um uh that don't that kind of do have a classic long pointy track but it's still always bigger and then i i, I and so i'm looking at that and i'm looking at i'm trying to make a guess on how much does the buck weigh? And this is where the Benoit brothers are just totally worth reading their books because they really go into that. And, and it has to do with how the buck walks, has to do with how the rear lobes in the track um, sink into the soil. And then you got to take in all the conditions of the soil because it's different everywhere. You know, it's harder soil. It's not going to sink in as deep. Crusted soil is going to be different, all that stuff. And that's why you just need to get out and practice this stuff. But I'm trying to make a guess on how much does this buck weigh? Because it could be a young buck with sort of a, a blocky track. But if it's like, whoa, you know, I can tell that's a doe track right there. And look, she hasn't sunk any deeper into the soil than he has, or let's just say there's three inches of snow and it's like, wow, I don't even see his dew claws here. 
And, you know, or if I do, they're just those small little pricks in the snow and there's a doe track right there. I can see her dew claws. This is not a heavy buck. All right. Where, gotcha. where if you, and, and, and this is where guys get discouraged. They'll look at a lot of them. And they're like, man, I can hardly tell the difference of them. Oh, it's okay. It's because there's not very many big bucks around. Keep looking. And then when you do see a big track, it will be like a flashing beacon to you. You will know in your soul that my friend is a big deer right there. And then it goes back to what we were talking about. You know, how am I going to hunt the area? How am I going to approach it? What am I going to do? How old is it? All of that stuff goes into it. And so I'm going on and on and on because it's a huge subject, but tracking is very, very important. Don't just glass. Use the recon you get from glassing. Use the information you get from tracking to plan your hunt, and you will kill more big deer. Let's leave that one at that, or I'll just keep rattling. <laughs> no, I, I was loving it. I was sitting over here like, oh, okay, the temperature. Oh, okay, the, if it's broke off, that's even better. <laughs> yeah. like, this is gold, Robbie. Keep on going. That's why well, I didn't say a word. <laughs> go get Tom Brown's Jr.'s book. It's called The Art and Science of Tracking. Um, and don't get discouraged. You'll be lost by about chapter four. That's about as far as I made it. Because, you know, this dude gets down to tracking spiders, all right? He gets down to tracking spiders in the dust, all right? He goes into all that stuff, too. And again, he's got, he's got some pretty weird stuff in there, you know, the whole metaphysical type stuff, you know, the ancient religions. And, and that's all. You know, what, whatever. That's not what I'm reading the book for. But his physical description of tracking I promise you that even if the guy is 50% full of crap, which some people say he is, um, he's still 50% more knowledgeable than virtually any, uh, I'll just say it, white man on the planet. Because we're the ones that are, you know, living in the big cities and, you know, far removed from the, uh, the, whole, the whole tracking thing. Um, you know, dude, this, this is funny. I, I, this is how much I love tracking, even though I said, let's move on. I, I don't want to move on, dude. Let me tell you something. Some of these farmers <laughs> that I meet, some of these farm kids that I meet that truly live, you know, maybe they live close to a city or something, but they, you know, they live off the land and, you know, they're, 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 they've got cattle, they've got, you know, sheep, they've got all this stuff. Virtually every one of those guys I meet, they don't even realize it, but they're excellent trackers. And when you go out, you spend just an hour with them in the woods, they're pointing out just all this sign that you don't even realize like, Oh, that's that steer that we lost a couple days ago. There's his track or, you know, they, 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 they they'll, they'll, they'll go out into a, just a, an expanse of nothing but dry ground. And they'll go, Oh, look, there was a herd elk here two days ago. Like, what? Where, yeah. where did you see this? I mean, dude, I'm talking, you know, like to a 17 year old kid. I mean, it's, it's just, that, that's why I make fun of the white guys because you know, we're, we're so far removed from this. Because we don't mm-hmm. live in nature, but, you know, a week or two or, if we're lucky, three a year. But there is an entire story going on on the ground that, that, that good hunters will begin to understand. we got to stop there, Zach, or we're not going to get on to still hunting and ambush hunting. <laughs> yeah <clears throat> well I, I agree with you you know i i think uh without a doubt uh the you, the you know the tracks are kind of the part of the story it's kind of like the intro to a story 
right? When you first get a book, you look at it, you're like, I don't really need to read the acknowledgements or the intro. Let's just get to chapter one. That's kind of how those are. They can tell you so much about what's about to happen or what is there or what isn't there. Um, And they're just something that people should definitely learn if they're serious about it. Uh, but yeah, let's, let's dive into still hunting. I, uh, it's interesting. This is one of the topics because I actually utilized still hunting this year in South Dakota and shot a whitetail buck and it was, right. yeah. And then, uh, we, we still hunted my, my wife shot her first bull elk this year too. So <clears throat> we, uh, we utilized it quite a bit. So I'm excited to dive into still hunting. So what? What makes you think that uh, still hunting is something that's important enough to uh, to be in the toolbox? Because for some bucks, especially older bucks that are um, <clears throat> living in the cover, and a lot of them are, it's the only way to kill them. It's one of the few ways to kill them because you can't glass them. They're not coming out where you can get a shot at them. Um, you know, like I said earlier, unless you can carpet bomb the entire 30 acre patch that they're in, you're not going to get them. They're not going to show themselves in daylight hours. Um, where still hunting allows me to get in their living room and it's hard. I don't want to make it sound easy. It's not easy. It's why so many guys don't do it and they don't like it, but sometimes it's the only game in town. Um, and you know, we talk about tracking a lot. And so, um, um, you know, if, there, if there's a sign in the area of big deer and I'm just not seeing them by glassing, then I know that they're just hiding and I've got to get in there where where they are and it's why my average shot on big deer um is a lot shorter than what uh, what i am reading nowadays out there i'm not against long-range hunting but i'm not a long-range hunter and it's Mm -hmm. because for me personally in the way i hunt um i've learned you've either got to kill them from a long ways away like 1000 to 2000 yards or you've got to kill them under 200 they live in places where you can't see them between that 200 and you know 2,000 yards and you know it just has to do with broken terrain and where they choose to live and stuff like that and so still hunting allows you to get into their living room and at least have half a chance of killing but it is it is a low productive method I want to be clear about that Um, it's almost my last choice method um, because you got a lot of things against you and this is why we opened the whole podcast with moving in deer country and and this is why I learned that is because when you're in there still hunting all the cards are in their favor the best you can do is have the wind in your favor but they can hear it so much better than you you know look at their ears they've got the biggest ears of about any of the uncle that's their 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 virtual radar stations and they live in an environment that is generally quiet um and so unnatural sounds they pick them right up so you've got that against you because you're in the cover you know you're in there you're making unnatural noises and um their eyes are so set up to see movement. Um, I think their eyes are see movement better than they see, you know, resolution or, or distance, I guess is probably a better way to do it. I think that you have more of a chance of getting spotted by, you know, reaching your hand up to, to wipe the snot off your nose versus, you know, standing in the wide open, um, you know, motionless 
because their eyes pick up on that movement. And any good deer hunter right now, I know, is shaking his head and nodding his head. He's going, oh, yeah, yeah, I've been busted so many times by little tiny movements. And so you've got all right. that against you when you're still hunting. But if the deer are not coming out of the cover and you don't know exactly where they are or you can stalk them, um, you, you don't have any choice. You've got to figure out how to get in there and be quiet and be ready. And that's why you don't see big giant scopes on my rifle. It's why I'm not afraid to hunt with an open-sided muzzleloader because I know that, well, a lot of times I'm going to, you know, just to get to see them, I'm going to be under a couple hundred yards anyways. And that deer I killed this, this last fall, the best deer I've ever killed. Um, I killed him at 110 yards and never could once see his entire body in five minutes of pussyfooting through that cover and getting glimpses of him and just waiting on a shot. I never, and he was with another buck, so I'd be like triple careful and not shoot the wrong buck. And and my whole <laughs> point in that is, is I, I, I had a chance at him at 450 yards, but he was walking and the wind was blowing so stinking hard that I just, there was no way I was going to take that shot and, and risk losing this buck. So my only other shot was to get in the cover and still hunt through there slow enough that I have a chance at killing him. And, and, and I did, I got lucky and I killed him. And, and so backing up just a little bit, I want to be clear about still hunting. A lot of guys hate it. I've had good deer hunters. Just like, I hate still hunting. I get that. And, but I think that you gotta, you, you, you gotta have a working definition of still hunting and still hunting to me, is just moving through the cover slowly. Um, and, 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 and this is the, this is the crux of it all. It has to be, um, country that, you know, the buck or bucks or the target deer is using. And how do you know that? Well, that goes back to tracking and glassing and obeying the wind, not polluting your country. And so I don't just randomly hunt through, still hunt through <laughs> giant pieces of country. No, no, no. That was, that was me in my twenties. And I hated I hated still hunting too because it was so unproductive because for it to work, you've got to move so slow. Um, you know, <laughs> usually somewhere in that 100 to 400 yards an hour range, which is torturous. It's so hard to move that slow. And, um, um, you know, especially for a white guy from the city. Um, and so still hunting, <laughs> you, you have to apply it in country that you know there's, 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 there's animals within a relatively small area or, or, or you're just wasting your time. You really are. You should go back to camp and take a nap. That's what I do until I know that, okay, this, I'm not seeing the bucks out of the cover, but I've seen tracks on that South end of that big quakey patch. Two years ago, I saw a big buck standing at the top of that big quakey patch I, and I know deer use that. I know they do, and I'm not seeing the buck, so I got nothing to lose by getting on a game trail, which I happen to remember from four years ago is on the other side of that patch. I'm just going to pussyfoot through there in, with that game trail. And I get over there, and the wind is at least quartering across me. And so I'm, I'm not just letting my wind blow into the the patch that's all again i'm obeying the wind because if i got over there and even though the trail's right there if the wind is blowing at my back i'm not going to do it i'm going to come around a different way but i get over there it's all good and that say that quickie patch is you know 10 acres you know a couple hundred yards across um you know half a mile across whatever depends on how it's laid out i may spend two three hours pussyfooting through there um, because I know this is productive country. And so, so having explained it that way, Zach, let's back up. You mentioned killing two animals this year. 
um, by still hunting. Were you just randomly still hunting? You know, like you got out of the truck and, oh, that looks good. Let's go spend three hours walking through there. Is that how you did it? <laughs> Not quite, but probably closer than you think, purely because it was my first day in the area. Okay. Um, however, I sat on on uh, the opposite ridge side and I was overlooking this great big ridge or this big, great big um canyon and the other ridge and a basin at the head of it and then a couple ridges on the op you know on the next next ridge line over where i could see the heads of those ridge lines and those fingers i just sat there and started glassing glassing and pretty quick i started noticing all these deer moving Mm -hmm. going the same direction and then i started watching this whitetail buck go in there and this is the last day I have to hunt. I, I went to South Dakota for a mule deer, but obviously you can shoot either. And I just was like, you know what? I'm, I'm completely cool with a whitetail. This, this spot that I happened to be at that day, there was way more whitetails than mule deer. So I was just like, oh, I guess we're changing game plans. And um, it all started because I looked over and I saw a buck and, cha- you know, following a doe. And I was thinking, I never saw him come out anywhere. I said, so they probably got to be over there somewhere. And on top of it, I had glassed up some mule deer that were, that I couldn't really see. And I was like, well, let's go over, check out those mule deer and see if there's bucks with them. And if not, I'm going to still hunt through, uh, cause I, I could see that there was an old logging road that went through the, the probably the upper third of this great big patch. And I was like, you know what, if I can get on that logging road and just move really slow, it might all come together. So I got on there and I started just moving really slow. And I kept telling myself, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. And I would take about six to eight steps and I would glass. And I would take six to eight steps and I would glass. And I don't mean six to eight fast steps. I mean, looking where I was stepping, setting mm-hmm. them down, making sure it wasn't crunching and I glass. And uh, finally I looked up and it, being last day, I was more than happy to shoot a doe and I look up mm-hmm. and there's this doe standing there and I went to go range it and it took off. Got to go a little bit farther and I looked up and here's a buck <clears throat> standing there. I can't tell if he's alert because of me or alert because he's looking at this doe. And uh, almost shot him. Anyways, long story short, about two hours later after going to another spot, not seeing a damn thing, I came back down this road and I said, you know what? Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to still hunt through this again. The wind wasn't as good as the first time. The first time uh, hunting the upper third, the wind was blowing kind of uphill diagonally. So I was focusing my attention on that lower two thirds below me because I had the wind right for that. And on my way back through, just still hunting, still hunting, <laughs> I got to that spot where I had seen that first buck and I started dinking around looking to see if I should have made the shot or not. And I hear a twig snap and I turn around real slow and I just catch a, a glimpse of an antler, a bedded deer. It's like, no freaking way. <laughs> so I slowly turn around and uh, go to put on my fixed blade because there was a little bit of grass. I didn't want the broadhead to open. And uh, then he, he ended up standing up. So I just dropped my other arrow that I had, was going to clip and shot him at like 50 yards. But oh, yeah, no, it was. Sail hunting with a bow. Oh my gosh, I should have known yeah. you were a bow hunting. Cool, man. Well, I'll tell you what, you just just illustrated my entire point, though. You didn't just randomly walk in there. 
And that's, that's where guys go wrong with still hunting. Like, well, it's my last day to hunt. I'm just going to go walk through these trees. No, no, no. You've got some recon. You sat back, you looked, you saw their deer sightings. You kind of, you kind of put out there exactly what I've learned over the years. I can sit back from a long ways and see deer, but I can't get them unless I get in there and kill them. That's all I mean by getting in their living room. And you figured out where that logging road was. You, you obeyed the wind. You just said it. You figured out the wind. You were even going to change the way you were going to go in. And you got yep. in there and you just did one of the hardest things that there is to do. And that is still hunting with a bow even. <laughs> now, it, and, 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 and when you get up to still hunting big deer with a bow, it's almost at the level of impossible just because, you know, you're now you're not just in the cover ready to shoot any, any hour. You're trying to get to get a, a, a certain buck. So if, if you've read it in my articles out there that I don't like still hunting with a bow, that's what I'm talking about. It's because I'm after a great big deer. But, but Zach, you just laid it out exactly what I'm talking about with still hunting. You didn't just go randomly hunt through the country. You went somewhere, even though you only had one day to hunt it, and it was the first day you'd ever hunted it, you still were pretty careful about picking where you were going to go move slowly. Am I correct about that? Yep, exactly. And it was, you know, I, everything just kind of turned out for the best because it, it ended up being probably a four and a half year old whitetail. So it wasn't, uh, it, it was a great buck, you know, I just, just with the, you know, as you said, the, having the, the wind just right, uh, and moving slow enough. Cause I, I like you say, I could have came around that corner and been like, Oh, I just walked through this two hours ago. And, and those other deer ran away because of me, there's not going to be anything here. Yep. Um, but time and time again, has proved that that thought can screw you over anytime yep. hunting, especially during the rut, the amount of deer that are moving in and out yeah. of an area during the rut is insanely different for sure. Yeah, you're right. So timing has a lot to do with it too. You know, you can pollute a quakey patch and November rut, there might be new deer back in 15 minutes. So, so, but that's yeah, what I mean exactly. about still hunting. And that's why that's so important. Cause had you not gone in there and still hunted, you'd have been sitting on the knob all day. And, um, and it, while that sounds really sexy in a magazine article that I, Hey, I said on the knob all day, you wouldn't kill the buck <laughs> because they were not coming out where you could stalk them and get to them. You had to go in the cover. So, so, so don't, don't, all I'm saying to your listeners, don't, don't rule out still hunting. It has its place. Um, there's some days that still hunting is terrible. Even if you know where the deer are, if, if the ground is crunchy, the snow is crunchy, whatever it's, it's, it's not good either. It, it'll backfire on you. You know, so there's, there's certain, certain days that I don't even consider still hunting either because I'm just going to ruin the country that they're in. Um, but sometimes you wait a day, the temperature comes up to 36 degrees for four hours in the afternoon. That snow got soft. I can now work my way through that, you know, piece of cover and, and have a chance at, at them. So anyways, that's still yeah. hunting there. Let's get on to ambush hunting. One of my favorite ones. Yeah. And la one last thing about uh, still hunting is I really like to focus on still hunting. If there's a light drizzle. Oh yeah. Um, because most of the time on a light drizzle, those deer are going to be bedded because they're, they're, you know, as you know, once it really starts downpouring and the trees are dripping on them, they don't like having the trees drip on them. But if it's a light drizzle, everything's quieter. Your scent is usually dropping down to the, to the earth floor and 
you can just move at a snail's pace. And then a lot of times too, sometimes you got that slow, that a little amount of fog that helps conceal your movements as well. And, and I, I love still hunting when it's, when it's a light drizzle. Yeah, good point. I'm glad you bring that up because that's one of the conditions that makes it great. And windy days are good days to still hunt too. Yep. Yeah. Even any kind of, you know, everybody always cusses the wind. Oh, it was so windy and I was out there hunting and I was thinking, yes, I'm so glad it was windy because I'm not allowed oaf when it's, when it's, when it's windy. <laughs> yep. Exactly, but, dude. And that's, that's why sitting on the knob on a windy day beyond about half hour after sunrise, unless again, unless it's just a really good tag with a lot of bucks and open country. Oh, you're better off to try to apply some of these other techniques. Yep. Yep. For sure. So yeah, let's, uh, let's get into, into ambush hunting because I did, uh, I did some of that this year as well. So, so let's dive into ambush hunting. <laughs> ambush hunting. What I mean by that is I want to, I want to be real clear about it. I'm not talking about, okay, I'm up on the Ridge. I spotted a buck. He laid in his bed. I snuck in there and sat down and waited for him to get up. And two hours later, he did. He walked out and I shot him. That, that's just pure spot and stock. And that's what most hunters are attempting to do, which is you know very limited productivity in units that have any hunting pressure at all. You know, I'm talking for big deer. Can work on the 140 bucks you know, almost every day. But on the big deer, you know, they're, they're going to bed where you can't really stalk into them. You know, you might see them out of the cover, but then they go into the timber. You know, you don't really know where they're at in the timber and maybe it's a dry, crunchy day and there's just no way to still hunt in there. Um, and so that's when ambush hunting, which by ambush hunting, I, my definition is you take in all the recon of the area, what you've learned from glassing, what you've learned by being aware of the tracks, you know, maybe previous years knowledge. That's why sometimes these units you can hunt again and again, end up tipping the odds in your favor because you can take that recon in like, Hey, I've seen bucks in this little coolie before, you know, maybe there's not one here today, but I, I know this is where bucks show up. And, um, and then you, um, pick a place where you can, where you can sit motionless with your silhouette broken up and the wind in your favor and you let the deer do the moving. And I learned this from Kurt Garner and there's a lot of Kurt Garner haters out there. I, I, I get that. The guy didn't always um, have the, have the best ethics, but I learned so much from him and, and, and that's what he taught me is that sitting motionless in deer country with your silhouette broken up with the wind in your favor, you are virtually undetectable to the even smartest, wiliest, oldest buck on the mountain. He can't see you. He can't know you're there if you're doing that. Well, the problem mm -hmm. with doing that, though, is the deer better appear right in front of you. Or, you know, you're going to, you're going to just sit there for days and never see one. So that's why you have to take in all the recon of this is a good place to be and to sit. And really think about whitetail hunters. That's all they're doing. You know, they, 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 the, the tree stand hunters, they are ambush hunting. That's what that is. They've taken in all yep. the recon of the area, whether there's a soybean being filled, you know, upwind of this place and, and, you know, there's bedding area behind me, whatever. It's the same concept. It's just mule deer country is bigger and we're not typically up in a tree. Um, uh, it's the same concept of you are just going to let the deer do the moving and you do the killing. And it's boring. It's hard. It's hard to know where to sit. You'll always second guess yourself. 
but I, 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 I love the technique simply because I've killed two or three of my top five deer by doing it. And looking back, the most recent one is the 2016 buck I'm going to feature at the seminar. The looking back, it was the only way I could kill those deer because there was no spot and stock opportunity. They were not betting, you know, if they were out of the cover, there was, you had to get within range of them just almost instantly before they disappeared into the cover. And then the, the cover they were using was so expansive. There was really no way to know where they bedding in there. And then the conditions were as such that it was hot and dry, which are the worst still hunting conditions. So even though I, I knew where the deer was and maybe I could still hunt through that cover. I, I would just spook them. So I ended up sitting back and just letting the deer do their thing. And sometimes it takes days. Sometimes it only takes hours if you, if you're lucky, but I have killed again, you know, two, three of my very best bucks by ambush hunting. And some country is only conducive to, ambush hunting and like rolling hill type stuff where you can't get a really good vantage point. That's, that's really good for ambush hunting because you know, you, you kind of know where the deer are going to be, but there's nowhere you can really sit and see them all the time, but you have these high productivity areas either by the tracks or previous years hunting that you can just go sit and get the wind in your favor and just let the deer do the moving. And because they, they, that you've overcome their senses that it, it'll shock you at, you know, 1030 in the morning or four o'clock in the afternoon up gets this big buck and just comes walking by totally relaxed feeding. It'll blow you away. You will think, where have you been all my life? You handsome fella. <laughs> well, he's been in the cover and every time you walked through the cover, you spooked him and he just laid down or he, he, he had an exit route where when you do ambush hunting, right, he doesn't even know you're there and he goes about his daily activities and contrary to popular belief, the bucks don't just go in the cover and, you know, dig a foxhole and lay in it all day. And then the last minutes of life, they come out. No, they're in there walking around. They're eating. You know, they're getting up during the day. It'll shock you how much they move in, in the cover sometimes. And, and ambush hunting allows you to take advantage of, of that. And so the older I get, the more I ambush hunt because the harder it is to walk. <laughs> and, and, uh, but it's, it takes a lot of patience and you have to do it in the right areas or it ends up just being like still hunting, you know, vast expanses of country that doesn't have the target species in it. You just end up wasting your time and after five years of doing it. You're like, this doesn't work. So you got to apply it where, where it, where it's going to make a difference, but, but it's awesome. Yeah, I and when I think of <clears throat> ambush hunting, I mean you brought up you brought up a couple cool points. Uh, one of the things that I think of ambush hunting, you know, is I'm glassing over there, and I see a deer that is for for really simple things. Let's say he's coming off the hayfield and he's headed towards the public to bed up in the up in the willows. Um, I think of ambush hunting. I'm like, okay, cool. There he is. He's obviously going to there because he's not going to lay down in the middle of that wide ass open. I got to beat him there or cut him off. <laughs> That's a form of ambush hunting that I think of. Um, you know, but the, the whole idea that you said, find a spot, sit down, 
Make sure your outline is broke up. I, you, I, that needs to be stressed. Make sure your outline is broke up, he said. That is no different than when you're calling an animal into you uh, or when you're sitting in a goose blind or duck. It doesn't matter. Your outline has got to be broken up. Even a tree stand, your outline has got to be broken up or else you're done for. So that was that was something I wanted to stress on a lot um, with sitting wherever you're going to sit. Even if you're sitting in glassing, you cannot be skylined because you stick out like sore thumb to animals. <laughs> yep, it'll just it'll just you'll see animals and you'll just blow them out. You know, they just they'll they'll see you. You know, it's just it's just amazing. And you know, nobody can sit perfectly still is the problem. You know, you're going to be yeah adjusting your hat or looking through your binoculars and everything. But yeah, if you're just what you said, if your outline is broke up, you're just that, that yeah. Yeah, and I mean. Case in point, this year in South Dakota, um, and this has to do with about three of the things that we talked about. Um, On my way in, I was utilizing this uh, big, long ridgeline. I was walking on the opposite side of the ridgeline to – to what I wanted to glass. I had the wind in my direction. I was doing great moving in deer country. And then I screwed myself the very last step, and that was before – Going over very slowly over the top of that ridge, I didn't glass intently right below in front of me to make sure nothing was there. Mm-hmm. So rather than, you know, almost belly crawling or whatever and getting on the other side of that ridge to where my outline is broken up and then starting to glass, I kind of nonchalantly, oh, here, this will work and sat down. I look up and there goes the deer. You know, mm-hmm. I, I probably could have bedded one of those bucks up and shot one, but mm-hmm. I stopped focusing on moving in deer country correctly and I didn't break up my outline and off they went. <laughs> yep. Yep. Exactly, buddy. That's how, that's how all that stuff ties together right there. Yep. So, uh, real quick, a couple, what, you know, f- uh, going back to, you said your deer hunt in 2016, uh, you don't think that there was any other way that you could have killed that deer besides ambush hunting. Um, what are maybe three of the key factors that you kept observing and seeing that made you choose the spot that you chose to shoot that deer? Okay. First of all, it was an early November hunt with no weather whatsoever. We're talking suntan weather. It should be snowing and cold and, you know, ruddy bucks, you know, up at all hours of the day was just the opposite of that. So I knew the deer were going to be using the cover. If I was going to catch them by the does, it was going to be early in the mornings and close to dark. Um, And so I spent three and a half days glassing all this country, uh, doing nothing else, no still hunting because the conditions were horrible. There was no tracking because there was, you know, just hardly anything to see. It was all dry ground. Um, And I just glassed for three and a half days. And um, on the third day, uh, I think it was, I don't know, 10 o'clock, 9 o'clock in the morning, you know, getting late enough that the deer were headed to the cover. I spotted a buck at about three and a half miles going over the skyline, and I got a five-second look at him as he crossed the skyline, and maybe 10 seconds of him with walking through the sagebrush with you know, his antlers um, obscured by the sagebrush. So, you know, 15 seconds of recon. You know, I'd glassed over 30 bucks in those three and a half days. As soon as I saw him, I knew he was something special. I knew he wasn't wide. I knew he was heavy to be able to see that kind of mass, that, that, uh, yardage. So, um, I, uh, that was on a Friday morning and Friday night I got on, uh, on that knob within a half a mile 
you know, I was had not hunted that particular spot before. And so it was a little bit new to me and I wanted to make sure I had the wind in my favor or if I, if the wind changed, I was far enough away from the deer that I, it didn't bugger up the area. And then I just watched and I think I watched for three hours that night and I noticed there were some does using the area. I didn't see him, but I thought, okay, this, you know, it's like November 3rd or 4th, you know, he's, even though he's not out here, you know, acting stupid, he's, he's here because those does are here. And so then um, I back there the next morning, I moved in a little bit closer. Now I'm sitting up within probably five to 700 yards from where I had seen him. And I sat, Oh gosh, almost all day that day. I, I stopped for lunch, maybe for two hours and, you know, just backed out of the area, walked back to the truck, you know, took a nap, ate, you know, whatever, got back out there, you know, three, four o'clock in, in, in November, you know, it's, it's almost evening by then and never right. saw him, never saw him Saturday night. So then, you know, I'm like everybody else that kind of starts questioning, did I really see a big buck? Is a really big buck here. So on Sunday I decided to come in a different, angle and I put the sun at my back so I had full full light shining into the area because it's heavy quakey service berry um, antelope bitter brush country I mean really hard to see a deer in and on Sunday morning I just was kind of it was sort of a still hunt, but I was far enough away. You know, it wasn't really a still hunt. It was just kind of moving in deer country and just seeing what I could see. And bam, right at sunrise, I spotted him. And he was right on that same knob. If I had just stayed where I was supposed to, I would have killed him that morning. <laughs> but um, I saw him out. Um, um, and, and the reason I know bucks are rutting is because they turn into hound dogs and they smell the ground a lot. So even if there's no does around and I see him smelling the ground a lot, I know that they're looking for does. And that's what he was doing. He was at 900 yards. I took off after him. Not and it's not very steep right here. I mean, I'm almost on his same level. So it's not too hard to cover 900 yards. You know, and I need to get four, 450. And for all you long range hunters are thinking, oh yeah, you could have just laid down and killed no, the brush was too high. You couldn't really lay down to, and, 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 you know, unless you had a, you know, type of weapon system that allowed you to shoot from standing at 900 yards. And he never really stopped. Like he, he was a hound dog. And so, you know, I only got to see him about 20 seconds. Most of the long range stuff I've been around, that's not enough time to get ready, you know, to dial and do all that other stuff. And so um, I, I headed in, I was hoping to get, you know, four, 450. And by the time I got in there, dude, I just ended up in his living room, just big tangle of brush. I wasn't even sure where I'd seen him. You know, I tried to still hunt a little bit. It was so noisy. I'm just like, you, you dummy, just get out of here. You know, and I was, I was a little mad because I, if I had just stayed where I had been ambushing from, I would have killed him. I mean, I would have had a three or 400 yard shot. So that just galvanized my will that this is, and the season was going to end in a couple of days. I thought, I, I, I just got to, I just got to sit here. So I got back to where I was. Uh, so what's that? Sunday, Sunday, I sat all Sunday afternoon, nothing, sat till dark. Monday morning, same thing. I sat till like one o'clock and I had cell service and something blew up at work. I had to flip and hike out to the truck and get my computer and answer a bunch of emails, you know, big fight going on at work. I had to take care of. And by the time I got done, it was, I don't know, two 30 or something. I'm getting late enough. I just ate real quick and you know, headed back up there. You know, I was, I was hiking in maybe three quarters of a mile and sat down about, four o'clock. Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I sat down a little earlier than that, but about four o'clock, um, I see a deer, a lone deer down in the brush where I had seen the buck 
the day before. Like I told you, I could have killed him if I'd just been sitting there. He was a little bit lower mm-hmm. on the hill, but I thought, man, that's that's good because that's either a doe he's going to come out and sniff. And the country's so brushy that just because you see a deer doesn't mean, oh, yeah, that's a buck. And you know, you're just looking at pieces of deer. I, I was glassing through my 15s. And I'm like, okay, this is good. Just just get ready and watch. And it took about five minutes, and he finally cleared the cover, and it was him. And, oh, dude, he was so heavy. I mean, he's got places on his antlers that's over seven inches around up towards the top. And um, he's every he's everything but wide. He's only 24 inches wide. He's the biggest, widest, biggest, narrowest buck I've ever killed. But So I got to look at all that. And, and now and he's kind of down the hill a little bit. I think he was about 700 yards, a little too far for me to shoot. But he was working his way up towards me a little bit. But he was on high alert. And I don't know if it's because he just sensed something was going on. I have no idea. Uh, I, I don't attribute magical powers to him. But, you know, he wasn't just walking around dumb in the rut. And there was a couple of does further up the hill from where he was at. He wasn't really looking at them. But I thought, you know, they're, they're hound dogs. He's going to smell those deer. So I decided as soon as he puts his head down or gets obscured, I, if I can cut 300 yards off this, I can kill this deer. And uh, so it took a minute, and he did. He put his head down. I could see, couldn't see even really see him. So I took off and just headed straight for him. And once I got out of the open end of the end of the cover, because I realized I was kind of sitting out on open hillside, and I felt stupid. Like, gosh, dang, I'm I'm too exposed here. But as soon as I got in the cover, I took off. I literally literally ran, and mm-hmm. I, I cut off. You know what I figured was a few hundred yards. You know, I'm thinking I'm going to peek over this knob, and he's going to be about 400 yards. And um, I, I got up, peeked up over the knob, flipped. He was about 250, and um, uh, and, and and like it always is, dude. You don't just kill him. You know, he's not facing right. The brush is too high to get a rest. And he had kind of worked his way up the hill a little bit. And he was keying in on those does. He wasn't chasing them. But it was just like, you know, he. these are cool cats, dude. They, you know, they, they are smooth operators. You know, this is not the drunk guy at the bar hitting on all the women. You know, this is the smooth guy that's sitting over in the corner, you know, just kind of watching all the women. That's what he was. And so he yeah. was just watching those does. And I thought, okay, he's. He's going to stay right here. Take your time. Try to get a shot. And I got to get, I got to fast forward here. I'm never going to get it killed. But, um, and, and I, I, I could finally, I just could not get the gun freaking steady where I was. And, um, you know, by the time I got the gun high enough above the brush, um, I, I still had my, my, my glassing tripod in my hand. So I was trying to use it for a rest. Um, I just, I just couldn't get shot at him. Every once in a while, he would look my way. So I knew he was hearing stuff. You know, he wasn't spooked, but you know, at, at some point he's going to get sick of this. Right below me, there's a little opening about 15 yards away that didn't have a lot of brush in front of it. I thought, if I could get to that opening, I could see over the brush. So I crawled down there, and I get quiet as I could, and kind of ease my way up. And, you know, as I come up, I just stand the tripod up and then lay the gun right on it, all in one motion. Flippy's gone. Gosh, dang it. I spooked him <laughs> where he's at, and, 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 and I just kept sitting there watching. I thought, well, I've just got to wait now because I've moved enough. Now I'm, in, you know, I'm under, under 250 yards. I'm going to spook him. He's going to hear me. I know he's going to hear me. The does are still there. Just wait. And so I did, and it, wasn't, it seemed like forever. I went along. A couple minutes, he popped back out. And, and, and he, you know, he'd only walked 10 yards, and, but he saw me. When he popped out, he was looking right at me like, oh, shit, did the 
gig is up. I have to kill this deer right now or I will never see him again. I'm too close. And if I spook him, it's done. It's done. The season ends tomorrow. It's done. So I just got myself together as well as I could. He was, uh, if I remember right, ordering towards me. And um, it sounds like a chip shot, but when you're looking through your crosshairs and they are making a, a big circle on his body and you can't settle that circle any more than just to keep it on the hair, it's, it's nerve wracking. And, and this is just big buck hunting. This is, this is how it always is. And, um, you know, time's running out. And I finally decided the best I can do is make sure there's hair in that crosshair when I go off. I'm either going to hit him, you know, forward in the neck. Worst case scenario, I'm going to hit him back in the ribs. It might be a little bit of a gut shot, but, you know, it's going to it's gonna hit him in that back ham. And, you know, I'm shooting a 270 Winchester short magnum. There's enough there that, that you know, it's going to hurt him. And so I just did the best I could, and I finally got that thing to go off. And, it killed him. It took an hour to figure it out because it was so brushy that it dropped him and I didn't see it. And the doe stayed there. And so I, I spent an hour getting around there. I'll have the video at my seminar, Western Hunting Expo. And um, I got around there and I had killed him. So uh, we just got that's off on so a big awesome. tangent, dude. But that, that's how it happened. Uh, you know, every, every element, that's how it happened right there. And that was why I chose ambush hunting because I just had to let him do the moving. He was never going to bed where I was going to see him. You know, he was never going to appear exactly, you know, where, 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 you know, he'd be bedded and I could get a spot and stock on him, you know, just too much cover, you know, all that stuff. So, so that's why yeah. I say I wouldn't kill that deer any other way than just sitting on my butt. And I, I think I ended up sitting there four and a half days to kill him. It took four days. I killed yeah. Him, so I killed him Monday night and I started yeah, sitting but- Friday night. So a lot of hours. Yeah, but I mean, like, just like me in South Dakota, you know, you were sitting there in that spot for a specific reason, you know? Yep, it wasn't random. Based on previous sightings, <laughs> in this in this case, based on glass, but glassing. But you know what? The tracking still played, played a part in it because I glassed him from three and a half miles. And then I got over there, you know, like I said, I did a little recon, you know, kind of moved into the area. Man, I didn't mention it, but I saw other bucks in their rutting does. I saw lots of tracks. You know, it was like this is a deer area. This is there's more here than just him and those couple of does I'm seeing. And so even tracking played a part in it. Awesome, awesome. Well, you know, I think it goes without saying uh, when you go to hunt a spot like that or anything like that, no matter what your tactic ends up being, knowing the area's true potential is is paramount in whether you're going to have success or not. And I think I kind of uh, might have a, a slight grasp on why this is so important. Um, but why why is this something that you chose to chose to mention and and even bring up? Um, because most of the time we, we kind of romanticize our hunts a little bit and we end up thinking there's bigger animals there than there really are. <laughs> Who and, does that? Uh, I've made, I've made that mistake so many times. And I see this every year with our guys around here that draw these, you know, really good buck hunts. It's always, you know, 200 or bust, you know, I finally got this tag. I'm going to kill a giant. And yet I'm thinking, you know, dude, there's been, no, virtually no giants killed in these units in 15 years, you know, n- nothing like what you're <laughs> yeah. up. 
And yeah, they're good hunts. Don't get me wrong. Great chance to shoot a 180, 190, you know, buck. And yeah, every 15 years, you know, someone shoots a 220. I get all that. But but what is the reality of what you're really going to see? And so sometimes we hold out too long is what I'm saying. And so this just gets down to knowing your unit, knowing your area. That's why scouting is so important is because it really shows you what is worth holding out for? Because it does no good to hold out for a 200-inch buck if one doesn't live in the unit. And there are plenty of units, I will safely say this, that have no 200-inch bucks, um, and especially units that you can get a tag in. And if they do have them, there's just so few and they're so scattered about that your chance of killing one is, well, you better be playing Powerball because, you know, your odds are about – that and so it's really just gets down. that's why I just wanted to mention it in my seminar that make sure you know what to hold out for don't hold out for a ghost that doesn't exist but yeah you know if there's if it's a great tag and you know you, you, you multiple bucks of the size that you're looking for have been killed in you know recent years um yeah do do go for the go for the gusto definitely hold out for a great one you know so so that's really all I mean by that yeah, I I think that that uh I think that brings up a really great point though. You know, because if let's say I go hunt South Dakota and I've been watching all these guys hunt the Arizona strip and I'm thinking, yeah, man, you know, giant deer. Um that hunt is going to turn out really really shitty for me. You know, People it's be disappointed. Not, not only yeah, not only am I not going to shoot a 200 inch deer, but I'm just not going to have that much fun. But if I go to South Dakota with the expectation of, hey, I'm going to go there, I'm going to get everything I got, I'm looking for a mature deer, and I can hunt both mule deer and whitetail. Let's go have some fun. Man, those hunts are going to turn out two completely different hunts for me. I, I agree, dude. That, that, you're exactly right. Just stay in reality for what the <laughs> yeah. is. And, and I like that you said you'll have fun. You're just going to have more fun. Exactly. Because you're, you know, you're matching it to what the area is capable of. So if, you know, you're seeing 140, 150 mule deer and you know that, hey, it's probably pretty much the best one other than, you know, the, the one unicorn that's out here somewhere, you know, it's probably the best one I'm going to see. You're going to have a lot of fun, you know, just keeping your, keeping in that reality. Yep, absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, going into a hunt with the correct expectations is going to basically guarantee you're going to come out of that hunt. Uh, whether you kill an animal or not, it's going to be a success. You got it. So, well, cool. Well, cool. So I guess um, that brings us to one of the one of the last topics. And obviously, everybody, make sure you realize that um, – Robbie's going to be going over this at Salt Lake City. Uh, it, I believe it is February 14th or the 17th. And he's going to go get to go more in depth than what we did here. So just keep that in mind. You know, this isn't, this isn't like a spoiler for what he's going to go over. This is, this is a preview. You know, he's going to get to go a lot more in depth and answer live questions on the spot and everything like that. So um, the last thing that we have to talk about is estimating actual antler size and uh i would i would love to hear why you know why you put this in here because then i'll i'll kind of give you my point of view on it uh as well what we know whether everybody wants to hear my point of view or not i'm going to give it (laughs) 
No, I want to hear it too, dude. That's how I learned is listening <laughs> to guys like you. Um, the reason that's on here is because it's so important whether you have a, you know, a strip tag or just a regular old over-the-counter, you know, Region K Wyoming tag. Um, you know, obviously I have to know the area's potential, but then you have to be able to estimate actual antler size quickly. A lot of times we see, you know, before we hunt, we think, okay, I've got this gigantic spotter you know i can see pimples on the moon so you know i'm going to be able to um you know to really look at this buck and and you know be able to score him all this other stuff i find that it's like the story i just told you often i don't get very long to look at them and i've got to make my mind up often fairly quickly as to whether they're a shooter or not. And, and then sometimes it's just, you, you spend too much time trying to, um, you know, score them before you shoot them and you're losing mm -hmm. critical minutes when you could be stalking the buck or preparing for a shot or you don't read, you know, you're sitting there, you know, looking over every inch of him. You don't realize there's a guy on the backside of that ridge right now. And, you know, he's walking up the hill and he's totally discouraged because he hasn't seen anything. And so he's actually, talking out loud and you know he's going to walk over that ridge in three minutes and your buck is now going to go to the next canyon and actually down on the private you won't even see him again for two weeks so you, you can you can what i'm getting at is that you just need to be able to estimate that they're a good buck and 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 we're talking about you know your non-premium tags obviously the better the tag is the more big bucks you're going to have a chance at then yeah you're you're, you're going to be wise to invest a little more time into knowing what you're looking at but you're probably also going to have some other things in your favor like less hunting pressure more big bucks more opportunities but um being able to do what i did on that last really long story that i just told when i saw that buck cross that ridge and i really only got <laughs> you know five seconds or something of the skyline to look at him i i i had to be able to know that's a shooter buck based on all the other bucks I'd seen that week glassing and you know, the hunting seat, the season is now there's only five days left. I got to get down to business and I have to focus. Um, well, part of the reason I stayed on that knob for all those days is because of that little five second um, view I got of him. I knew that's a good buck. No, I don't know if he's a uh, 29 inches wide. I don't know if he has a cheater on his left. I don't know any of that stuff. I just know big body, heavy buck, better than anything I've seen around here. This is not a great unit. I better get him killed. And so you have to be able to do that often quicker than what you think. And so you need to figure out how to look at a lot of bucks in the off season so that you can compare what a big buck truly looks like. Cause they, 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 they just have a look to them that I, I can't even describe that you just know when you're looking at a really big deer, if you've looked at enough deer, if you don't live in deer country, um, you know, we've got some great videographers out there, you know, the classic guys, you know, Steve Alderman, you know, Ryan Hatch, um, you know, all those guys have put out a ton of video of big bucks, the Eastman guys, some of their old stuff, just giant bucks. You need to look at all that stuff a lot and just get it burned into your brain of what a big deer looks like, because sometimes you're just not going to have a lot of time to judge them is what I'm getting asked. Sometimes you do, sometimes you, sometimes you really do. And that's great. You know, you'll, you can always um, you know, spend more time if you've got it. But it, I just have let a couple of bucks walk and I've seen a couple of guys 
let bucks walk that would have made their goal that were really big and they just couldn't make that split second decision. And then probably more commonly, it's the opposite. They shoot a lesser buck and they don't realize it. They, this has happened to me. And I, and I see it happen to a lot of guys. They will kill a buck and it will be six inches narrower and gross 20 inches less than what they thought. So they think they're shooting a 200, it's a 180. They think they're shooting a 30 incher, it's a 24 incher. Or, you know, move that down. They think they're shooting a 180, it's a 160. That's probably a lot more common. Or they think they're shooting a 27 incher and it's 22. That's happened to me. I've seen it happen to a lot of guys. And it really just gets down to uh, being able to estimate their antler size often in tough conditions without a lot of time. And so that's why that's on there. And that's something you can be doing in the off season and, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that that goes back to two um, making or breaking a hunt as silly as that may sound, you know, somebody shoots a deer that they think is great and they walk up there and, it's ears actually measure 26 inches outside spread and the deer's only 20 inches wide. And they're like, man, what the hell? I thought it was, you know, I thought it was a lot bigger than that. You know, so that, that plays into that definitely for sure. Happens a lot. I find it happens a lot. And then there's no shame. If you're happy with the 20 inch deer, that's great. We're happy for you too. But if you were thinking it was something better than what it really was, and I just hate for guys to be disappointed when they've taken an animal's life. And I felt bad when that's happened to me before, you know, cause I shot, a, I shot a yeah. buck that I thought was better and, and you know, and you feel bad and then it's like, I shouldn't feel bad. I just got a deer. Gosh, that's actually a pretty good deer, you know? So, so just being able to, you know, quickly judge deer is going to, going to help you do that so that's kind of what i wrap up the whole seminar with just to make sure people understand that and then what we're going to do on the seminar there's actually two seminars there's i've got my own on february 15th these are at the western hunting expo uh, mine is at 5 30 p.m on friday the 15th and then uh mark muley slayer mark he's been on your podcast right josh or sack excuse uh, me Yep. Yep. He yeah. sure has. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, I've listened. I listened to that on there. So him and I are doing a, a Q and a on Saturday. Um, and I think it's at the same time. It's at five 30 on Saturday and it's just a Q and a, because everybody, he's got his own solo seminar on Friday as well. So we're hoping people will come to our seminars. We're going to really try to dive into this stuff as deep as we can. And, you know, probably won't have a lot of time for questions, but we're hoping those guys can come to the Q&A the next day where we can just dedicate a whole hour to ask, answering their questions. And, and um, I'm going to have basically a case study of, you know, three, four, five of the big deer that I've killed in the last five years. Um, of that, that demonstrate these techniques. And so, you know, I got off on a tangent with that buck I killed in 2016, you know, but I'm glad you let me tell the story, but you know, I, I won't be able to get into the story as deeply, but I'll, but I've got video, I've got pictures and I'm just going to kind of visually show people how all this came together, which, you know, is a little bit harder to do on a podcast. And so that's really what the, the whole Western hunting expo thing is. This is my first time speaking. Um, uh, Mark has spoken, this will be his ninth year he's just a wealth of knowledge. I mean, that's why we call him the muley slayer. You know, he's, he's got a different approach to things than I do. He's not necessarily after the biggest animal, but he's killed some very nice animals, especially considering that he's a bow hunter for, you know, he's, he hunts rifle too, but a lot of his best bucks have been killed with a bow. So he brings that whole 
background of, of those experiences to this. And so that's why we wanted to pair up because we kind of felt like that, you know, the, the, the sum of the parts or the whole is bigger than the sum of the parts. By bringing us both together, you can get the big gear aspect, but you can get all the nuances that Mark has learned over the years of stalking and you know, that comes in from bow hunting, you know, all that stuff. You know, I've only killed three big three big deer with my bow you know mark's killed like 15 or 20 so by bringing all that experience together we, we really think there's going to be something special for people at the western hunting expo this year and um so we, we hope to see you all out there um i don't know when you're going to air this podcast but you know it should be well well before then and just just get your tickets and get down to salt lake and zach are you going to be there yeah, I am. Uh, and this podcast is going to come out Monday. So day after, you know, a right, couple days from right. now. Um, and before I dive into that real quick, I just want to say, um, I, I, I'm kind of like, like Mark when I, as far as it comes to hunting, you know, I had him on the podcast and he and I chatted quite a bit before the podcast and then after the podcast about hunting and things like that. And when I go on a hunt, yeah, I'm, I am like every hunter out there. I would love to shoot 180 to 240 inch deer. Cause who in the hell wouldn't we're hunters. We love that. Right. But right. I can tell you this much when I look over there and I see a buck that immediately I get excited nine times out of 10, it's game on. Um, whether I'm excited because of where he is, whether I'm excited because he's got one funky point, whether I'm excited because he's super wide, but he's only a four corn or whether I'm excited because he's a seven year old deer and what's on top of his head looks like garbage. It doesn't matter. I just, if I get excited, that pretty well might just seal the deal on whether I'm going over there or not. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you bring that up because I think sometimes when people listen to me talk, you know, it's I don't want people to think that all the fun is only in getting a giant buck every year because I certainly do not. I mean, I get spanked so many so many years that just just learning about deer, whatever size of deer you're happy with. I mean, I think it's good to just start with the deer that you've taken, and then if you want to build up to the next bigger size, do that. But, but learn about deer and have fun. The big antlers will kind of come and go over the years if you're applying some of these techniques. But even if you don't get to the point that you're, you know, really after the big antlers, that's all cool. I mean, I want, I want people to understand that these techniques I'm talking about, even if you're not after big antlers, they're going to make you more successful deer hunter because many of these techniques I've learned from guys that aren't necessarily big deer hunters, but they're good deer yeah. hunters. They, they, they fill their tags every year. That's why um, Mark and you know, guys like yourself are such a good resource. And I enjoy talking to people because we can learn something from each other. And, um, and, and, and ultimately I just want people to be happy with their, with their hunting experience and to get really mm-hmm. fired up about mule deer because mule deer are kind of on their heels right now. They're, they're, they're struggling across the West and, you know, there's a few bright spots out there and, you know, we've seen an improvement in the herd since the 90s but you know we need more people supporting deer hunting joining joining the mule deer foundation that's why i'm a lifetime member that's why i've paired up with them to do this seminar this year is i want people fired up and and so you know if you're like well hey big antlers i'm not too interested in that you know honestly dude you're probably gonna have more fun than me because you're gonna have you know more opportunities that the tags are even easier to get and um you know just get out there and have fun that's that's the main thing but if you really want to do the best you can hopefully this two hours that zach and i just dedicated to this is 
is, is going to help you. And there's, you know, a whole lifetime of techniques there that I've learned and I'm still polishing on. And, um, yeah. uh, you know, ho- hope this helps people. And I hope, hope we can get a lot of people fired up about mule deer. Look what the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation has done for elk. And then really, mm-hmm. I, 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 I'm not an, much of an elk hunter, but I've just, my hat's off to those guys. I want, I want to see the same kind of support for mule deer, you know, one of our greatest Western species. And, and, you know, that just means that just, it just, they just need the money. They need the support, you know, join your mule deer foundation, you know, join your local chapter, you know, do all that stuff, get out there and, you know, and, and, and maybe there'll be just as bright a future as there is for, uh, uh, for deer as there has been for elk. Yep. Yep. And, and I think too, you know, uh, last thing I'll, I'll touch on real quick and then uh, we'll close this off. Uh, I, you know, I think too, some, you know, every year I usually have some sort of goal, right? So one year it was my goal to get everything self-filmed. So uh-huh. when I go out to hunt and I see a deer in an excellent spot for me to take a spot, take a good stock, but I can get over there and fiddle with my camera and set the tripod up. Cause for those of you who haven't tried self-filming, it's difficult, especially with a bow. Um, so, you know, that, that plays a lot into, you know, what my goals are when I go into the hunt, but uh, Robbie, I, I love talking with you and I love learning with you because I want to shoot bigger deer every year. I want to progressively get more consistent at shooting bigger deer. Um, and, you know, I'll hit a point when I look over there and I see that 22 or 24 inch four point. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm a hold out. I haven't hit that point yet. But um, in order for you to kill bigger deer, you've got to hit that point eventually. Right? There's got to be a give and take, obviously. So um, yeah, yeah, exactly. I think... I think we covered a ton of excellent information for a lot of people to learn from. Once again, this, uh, Robbie's going to go more in depth with this. And then as you heard it from him, they're going to have a question. Him and Mark are going to have a question and answer podcast or not podcast. Sorry, question and answer seminar. And I myself, I will be there. So if uh, if you're there and you want to meet up and grab a bite to eat or whatever else, uh, you're more than welcome to message the Archery Maniacs Instagram account. Um, All right. For I'm not going to message your account. I got you on speed dial. You kidding me? Yeah, whatever. Don't lie to me. I do right here. I'm going to give out Zach's cell phone number right now on the podcast. Everybody (laughs) should call him today. So no, man, I will get a hold of you for sure. Would love to finally meet you. And I really appreciate you. You know, last couple of years, getting me on your podcast and, and dude, I think this is the only podcast that the exclusive content of the Western hunting expo uh, seminar is, 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 I think it's the only one that's going to be out there. I think we're going to record it at the uh, seminar and, um, uh, I think that'll be on on uh, Avery Adventures, but dude, I think you got the exclusive. Unless somebody calls me here in the next week, and so your right, uh, hopefully right. your listeners, man, if they can't get to the show, they they can listen to the Archery Maniacs podcast. Yeah, well, thanks for taking the time out on such a, a busy time for you, Robbie. Um, I enjoy the conversation thoroughly, and yeah, I, I do. I look forward to meeting you, and well, the, for that matter, anybody else that's listening to the show, I, if you guys are there, I look forward to meeting all of you, and. Uh, yeah, Robbie, I will uh, tag you when this airs. And other than that, I'll see you at the expo. Zach, I appreciate it. I appreciate you. It'd be really hard for me to have a podcast if all I did was talk to myself. (laughs) 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 All right, Robbie, we'll talk to you later. Have an excellent rest of your day. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to the show. It means a lot to us. But seriously, though, I really appreciate your ear, and it would mean the world to me if you would rate our podcast. If you didn't like it, one star it. 
But if you did, a five is even better. Don't forget to comment, like, share, and hit that subscribe button. Thanks again for tuning into the show. Some other podcasts that you should definitely check out are Eastman Elevating with Bride and Barney and Hunt Harvest Health with Ryan and Hillary Lampers. And a special thanks to Maven Optics, Six Sight Gear, Dark Energy Tech, Shield Mountain Outdoors, The Outdoor Insiders, Iron Mind Hunting, Valkyrie Archery, and Gannett Ridge Sporting Equipment.